We're not done yet. The Greek historian Herodotus, who's a famous Greek historian, writes of sacred winged serpents in his histories. He writes, there's a place in Arabia, not far from the town of Buto, where I learn about winged serpents. When I arrived there, I saw innumerable bones and backbones of serpents. This place adjoins the plain of Egypt. Winged serpents are said to fly from Arabia at the beginning of spring, making for Egypt. The serpents are like water snakes. Their wings are not feathered, but like the wings of a bat. But like the wings of a bat. Welcome back to Blurry Creatures. Thanks, guys, for uh, tuning in and subscribing and sharing the show with your friends. Luke and I are uh, looking at each other on a Zoom call. Yeah, we are, Nathan. And uh, we, we really need to be together in one room podcasting. We do. He's just so close yet so far away, my friend. Tell them how they can make it happen, Luke. Well, you get in your car, you drive about 45 minutes north <laughs> or south, depending on which way you want, whose house you want to come to, and you too. That's, that's <laughs> right. That's right. You too can be in Middle Tennessee. That's right. Hope you had a good holiday season. We had our Christmas show with Judd. Hope you yeah. liked that one. Yeah. And today we have Brian Godawa on the show, who's written a ton of books and brings more of that fantasy element to the Nephilim story. He kind of writes novels with historical characters and weaves the Bible in and out of his stuff. But we're going to learn some things about the the blurry world that we often talk about, you know, the creators of these these Nephilim creatures and the giants and the pyramids and all the stuff we, we talk about with guys like Derek yeah. and Judd. I, think, I love going back and unpacking familiar stories in the context of, of what we know now, in the context of Genesis 6 and the context of, of the megalithic stuff we know and also in the Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, Heiser Divine Council. I think I think Brian's going to put a really cool spin on on stories that we are most of us should be very familiar with. And like everything, it's going. Yeah, I expect it to get blurry. So uh, once again, if you want to uh, support the show, blurrycreatures.com/slash/members. Just can't say thanks enough to everyone who sponsors the show. We've had a just a great season on the show. People sending us messages. Luke, I mean, I, I don't even know how to say thanks. Sometimes some of the messages we get, it's just oh, it's. It's mind-blowing sometimes. You start a Bigfoot podcast, you get weird, and people are, you guys are just great. The community is awesome. Uh, we'll be doing a members chat soon in January. So if you want to become a member and support the show and, and kind of help us get this blurry content out there and produce more content, you guys are all amazing and, and helpful. And it keeps the show flowing. We don't want to throw any ads on this thing. We want to keep it kind of pure and raw, so... That's yeah. my sh- that's my spiel. That's my shtick. Like Not it. as good as Godawa. No, but you're learning, Nathan. For only six ninety nine a month, you can get yourself a blurry for a love blurry. gift of five dollars. <laughs> get some holy water. All right, and uh, let's get Brian on the show. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. 
enjoy the journey. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop that's just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. All right, welcome back to the show. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. You have a brand new book about Moses, and we're excited to hop into that and get more details about why you wrote it and what it's about. There's so many things in ancient Egypt that we talk about all the time on our show, how it relates to the megaliths, how it relates to ancient construction, and just the idea that there were there were multiple gods in the Old Testament influencing culture, and Moses would have been directly influenced by the Egyptian gods and all the things going on during that time that Christians sort of kind of don't want to talk about or acknowledge. It's just a strange uh, paradigm that we're, we're getting ourselves out of on our show. But uh, yeah, excited to learn more about ancient Egypt and what was going on. Right. And Nate, we just, we just got done talking to Dr. Judd Burton about Mount Hermon, and we covered that, that, loca- that location, that locale, the Genesis 6 phenomenon. That, that, that hits at a core a core space in what we do here. And so this is this is great, Brian. Really, really excited to talk about what you're doing in the context of of the watchers, which really predicates, you know, almost all, all of the creature things we cover, as well as all, all of the um okay. the theology we get into here, Nate. And we're always trying to sort of give people a if we had if we had a poster with all the creatures on it, where their origins are what they are. And one of the things, one of the things we do on our show is try to get better answers for the creatures that people still see today, where they come from and how it relates to the ancient world in order to understand modern day, basically demonic creatures. And when that's kind of where, where we land is that they have some sort of roots of satanic, demonic, whatever. They're, they're, they're just, there's too much weird paranormal stuff associated with sightings and things like that. So we go back to the old Testament all the time. And we're happy to have you on the show. Um, I don't know. What do you have? What are your thoughts on Bigfoot? What do you think about that creature that we can launch into your into your book? And well, I'm I'm not a Bigfoot guy. I don't <laughs> I don't follow it, so I, I don't know. I'm there's a couple of cool movies on Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which one? <laughs> Tell us. People always oh, ask know. us. I've seen one of these like um, horror movies. You know, the found footage stuff. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the oh, yeah. project. Like Harry and the Hendersons, all that yeah. found footage. I did see that one when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think do you think it has some like Nephilim ties or Nephilim roots? I mean, obviously you researched that a ton. Do you think it's related? Yeah, personally, no. I'm I'm not the guy to talk to about that stuff because nah, I, I I just don't. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yep. That's cool. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> hey, we do we do plenty of speculating for everybody else on here. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'll let we you guys speculate about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take us back to ancient Egypt, give sure. some framework to understand the ancient world and maybe some things in your book that you feel like are, are fresh and new that other people haven't covered or, or tackled. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the, the book is called Moses Against the Gods of Egypt. And what it is, is it's a novel and I'm retelling the story of Moses, but I'm telling it in, in, uh, within the watcher paradigm, what I call the watcher paradigm, which is the uh, Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 through 10 is a good 
encapsulating pack, uh, you know, passage that describes this idea that at the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations, and he also placed the Gentile nations who rejected God under the authority of these sons of God. Sons of God are these beings from heaven, from God's heavenly throne, particularly these were fallen from God's throne, and they, you know, the Gentile nations were fallen, and so it was like God was saying, okay, if you're going to keep worshiping idols, I'm going to place you under their authority. The ancient belief was that, and this is the Jews as well as uh, most all the ancient Middle Eastern, you know, ancient Near Eastern nations, believe that there was a, over every nation or big city like Babylon or something like that, there would there would be a, a territorial power or principality or power. And in the you know, book of Daniel um, mentions the watchers and that just think of it as watchers over the nations, you know, and um, but they're also called princes. And in, you know, chapter nine, I think you hear about the Prince of Greece and the Prince of Persia. In other words, there are in the same way there, there are earthly authorities, they felt that there were heavenly authorities over them and they were linked. So that if there's a war going on on earth, there's a war going on in heaven. So you have the example where Elisha's servant, Elisha the prophet, you know, this nation's coming down to, to I can't remember if it was um, Syria or not, but they were coming to, to against it, it, Jerusalem and Elisha's servant was all worried when we're going to be wiped out. And he says, oh God, open the eyes of my servant. So he opened his eyes and he could see up in the heavens that there was heavenly armies that were protecting them, meaning there's this connecting or there's a connection or link between earthly authorities and heavenly authorities. Mm. Now, what that exactly looks like, the Bible doesn't really reveal much. So uh, my novel series attempts to sort of speculate and say, what that, what might that look like in one way? You know, What might that spiritual world look like? Mm. And so I'm um, a lot of my novels have been about the Canaanite world, Canaanite gods like Baal and, and such, and how they interact with Yahweh and uh, Israel. You know, I've written a lot of those novels in Chronicles of the Nephilim. But what's so unique about the Moses one is now we're all we're in Egypt. It's a completely different world than the the Canaanite world that a lot of Israel is rooted in, right? Because that became their promised land. But nevertheless, I thought, well, this would be a fascinating story to retell because it's a completely different world, Egyptian worldview, yet there's a lot of commonalities between everyone uh, in the ancient mm -hmm. world. And Israelites were there for over 400 years. And the Bible talks about how they became very much like that nation, Egyptian nation. So they've been very infected by it. Just like when they went into Canaan and worshiped the Canaanite gods of Baal and Asherah, they were became infected as well. And so I thought, well, what, 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 what might it look like with these watchers over Egypt? And I thought, well, what if the gods of the ancient world, like Horus and Set and you know, Isis and Osiris, what if those were these watchers, these fallen angel, sons of God over Egypt? And so they had that, that demonic reality that, that Moses writes about in Deuteronomy 32. And, and so that's sort of my attempt to make se theological sense of that concept. So, you know, the, we all know the 10 plagues, right? And the 10 plagues is a fascinating thing, but yeah. uh, what really struck me, what sort of in, inspired me to write this particular novel is that in, in Exodus 12, 12, Yahweh says, I, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. 
on all the gods of Egypt. Like, what does that mean? Well, it's probably the plagues. Yeah. And you know, your first thought is, oh, the plagues, like they're uh, the frogs. Maybe there is a god of frogs and he's judging that god by the plague of frogs. And there's a god of locusts, right? And there is a god of locusts and a god of frogs. But the problem is, is all the 10 plagues don't, they don't all match up with specific deities. And secondly, the deities that do match up, like the frogs and the, and the locust gods, they're very, very minor gods in the pantheon. And so they don't really have importance like Osiris and Isis does, you know? And so there isn't that connection between the most important gods. So what, what could that really mean that he's judging, these, pl these plagues are judging the gods? Well, well, well really quick, you kind of talked about something I wanted to talk about a little bit more before we kind of go to the next level, is this connection between heaven and earth, warring on earth, my mirror warring in heaven. And it kind of reminds me of like, uh, when you do video editing, your, your audio is connected to your video sort of. And when you, you know, cut it around, it kind of all moves together as one. And we've also heard weird stories, Brian, on our show about how sometimes these UFO creatures are, are dis dismantling atomic bombs or something. And people have made suggestions that if we rip a hole in like, you know, if we mess with atomic nuclear bombs, it could rip holes in other dimensions. And there is this connection between different realms, levels of heaven. Can you talk a little bit more about that before we kind of hop into the the plagues? Sure, I, I'm curious sure. about about your thoughts on, on the connection well, I, there. I, I think that the biblical view is, is similar to ancient pagan views in that if you had like a, they, they thought that particularly the kings, but sometimes whole nations or, you know, sometimes even cities would have a guardian over it, right? But if there was a king like, ne you know, Nebuchadnezzar or something in Babylon, right? Or in my case, Pharaoh, <laughs> that they believed that there was a spiritual power over them. And they were, they were linked such that whatever happened on earth was happening in heaven. This is where Jesus makes that statement on earth as it is in heaven. That's that's part of that belief that that they believe that the worlds were, were connected and linked, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said, when Persia, you know, if you look at the Daniel story, Greece came after Persia in terms of worldly powers. And, and Daniel's all about how these Gentile kingdoms are sort of uh, controlling Israel, you know, unjustly, right? And, and he talks about, he pr predicts all these progressive empires. Well, you know, at the time that Persia was world power and had Israel in its powers, uh, Greece was coming on down the pike, right, in terms mm -hmm. of history, and they would ultimately take power away from Persia. So that's where you read in Daniel about these, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece fighting, you know? Uh, so there's this heavenly fighting that, mirrors the earthly fighting. What exactly that looks like, I, I don't know. And I speculate about it in my novel and, and the Bible doesn't reveal a lot, it just sort of mentions it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, or it mentions, you know, these heavenly chariots, but you don't, there's no description about what actually goes on beyond those glimpses. So I, I don't know exactly. I don't have a strong biblical sense. So I, I just speculate, okay, well, if it's, yeah. You know, if there's a war going on in heaven and there's a war going on in earth, why wouldn't the leaders of these nations also have petty, tyrannical goals just like the earthly, you know, authorities do, right? So yeah. they're going to be jockeying for power as well. So the pantheon in Egypt, all these different gods, well, maybe some of them are real and they're really jockeying for power with, with each other. So I try to, 
you know, tell a story that sort of makes sense of that. Do you think that they're directly influenced by the dragon, Satan, um, or are they independent doing their own thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Satan's one of them, actually. And, and you know, interestingly, in the Bible or in the Old Testament, there's really, there's really no individual character named Satan. Now, the, the word, the Hebrew word, Satan, ha-Satan, is used, but it's really most scholars will say that it's more like the title of a of a particular responsibility, not an, an individual's name. It mean the name Hasatan means the adversary, roughly, and so he was part of God's. Actually, he was even part of God's uh, divine council in heaven. That he would be the one that would accuse like you know he would accuse israel before god's heavenly throne in in you know books like uh what is it micah or or um ah, zechariah and such so whether or not he's the king of them all i i i don't know but in the new testament there is somewhat of more of a clarification right in the book of revelation we read about oh maybe he's connected to the serpent of the garden so some people believe that he's more of a motif of this rebellion against God, or maybe he is an individual. I suspect there is an individual reality to him because Jesus has that encounter with him yeah, you know, yeah, in the yeah. desert and stuff. I was just going to say. But what I'm saying is that this, this idea of the dragon, like you read about the dragon and dragon Satan, well, the dragon is actually a very common ancient Near Eastern motif as well as a biblical motif of chaos. Sure. So if you look the precursor to that dragon you read about in Revelation, if you want to understand the meanings of the New Testament things, you have to go back to their Old Testament origins. Yeah. And so for example, the the sea dragon of chaos, the dragon in Revelation comes out of the sea, right? Well, the sea dragon of chaos was called Leviathan in the Old Testament. And I don't think he was a literal creature. I think he was a symbolic creature that was used to refer to the chaos. Now, in my novels, I have him as a real spiritual creature embodying that chaos as part of the sort of part of the dramatic narrative to, you know, make it interesting. Like, what if there, what if he does exist in the spiritual world, right? But I think, biblically speaking, he, he represents the chaos out of which the gods, or in the Bible's case, the God, our God, creates order. And he, he's connected to the sea. The sea in the ancient mindset was chaos, you know? It, it you know, the, the tossing waves, they didn't know what was under it, and plus it's vast and all that. So they would often use the sea as the symbol of chaos. In fact, that's how God creates in Genesis 1. You've got that chaos waters, and he creates out of that. He brings his order out of that chaos. That's a very, very common ancient motif. Wasn't like Satan trapped in the waters, too, they say? Under the waters. A lot, right? I mean, under the, a lot of people have suggested that. And, and and we have heard that on our show that Satan, you know, or is a god of chaos. Yeah. And you know, God is a god of order. And that he's fully interested in the twisting of the gospel. And obviously if 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 one is orderly, the other one is disorderly, you know, and we've heard this in a million different ways described on the show. So, I mean, what if the Leviathan Leviathan is, do you think it could have been a creature maybe? And then it died out and then became this legend, just like a lot of things that, you know, kind of attached to maybe an animal that once existed and then didn't anymore. And then that, and you know, something like that. I, yeah. That's a common thing that does occur in history. Yeah. I don't think so. Personally, I don't after studying it in the Bible and other nature yeah. cultures and stuff. Um, 
because just when you under when you study the mindset of the ancient world and you become in in, in engrossed in it you 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 start to see how they understand things and and the reason why i say that is because if you do a study on leviathan in the bible he's connected to chaos like in Psalm 74, when God parts the Red Sea and brings his people through it, it says he crushes the heads of Leviathan. Yeah. Well, what he's doing is he's holding back the chaos. He's crushing chaos because he's going to bring them to Sinai and give them his order, the law, the Torah. That's God's order. That's his new covenant of, not new covenant, <laughs> that's his covenant of the new world of, that he's creating. So the ancient mindset saw the cosmos as involving their covenant and their, their worldview. It's not like we think of cosmos as in the physical, you know, planets and all that stuff, but their cosmos involved the, the world of, in which their God worked. And so, but the problem is, is crush the heads of Leviathan, yet Leviathan shows up later. Yeah. He gets and then he, it, it, in fact, it, it always describes God, you know, Rahab is another word, by the way, that is synonymous with Leviathan. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where the name comes from, but scholarship will tell you that it's the same. It's talking about that sea dragon of chaos. So it's maybe another way to name it, Rahab, mm -hmm. right? But nevertheless, it's the same creature that God keeps slaying over and over again. And then in Isaiah talks about, well, he in the future, God, he will slay Leviathan. So what's the point? He keeps slaying him and coming back to life? No, no. I think that it's symbolic and it just represents that the, the ancient mindset saw the world as chaos out of which they sought to create their orderly society and their gods in particular uh, including israel believe that their god created that order and so hmm. he, that was his creation of the heaven and earth so to speak was creating his order out of chaos so i, I yeah i don't i don't per personally that aren't creatures that may be referenced in the bible that became legendary, but I don't personally think uh, Leviathan is one of those. Yeah, he shows up in Revelation. We talk about how the beast is going to return, and there's this Leviathan creature that, yeah, like you said, he, he comes back again, and then comes back again. Yeah, I mean, could yeah. that just be the dragon? Couldn't that? Couldn't it be like a just like a, a metaphor to, to Satan himself? It could be. I mean, it, you know, there's one verse in the New Testament that does link that dragon to Satan and the serpent of old connecting him to the garden. So that's the only verse though in the Bible that does that. I'm not saying that that yeah. discredits it, but I'm just saying, I think that's why it's, it's probably more symbolic than literal in that sense. I think mm -hmm. that, and, and, and Satan though, he would be an, you could consider him an individual beings in some way, how, you know, why he exists as an individual being in some way. Ezekiel called Pharaoh Hophra, you know, he he referenced him as using that same reptilian uh, serpent of the waters. You're like a tanning, a dragon in the waters, right? In other words, the Hebrew mindset connects evil with serpent. Yeah, well, and that's what they're making. I mean, they're making serpent mounds. You know, thousands of years later here in America, and and it always goes back to that snake imagery. And it could be they were fiery serpents are sort of fallen angels that, I mean, it gets tricky, but I want to talk about specifically the gods of Egypt because yeah. like how many gods of, of Egypt do you think there were? <laughs> and what's the hierarchy here? Are they? Yeah. Yeah. I want to know your opinion on, on how many there were actual watchers, right? Because you talk about a pantheon of gods. They're not all probably, maybe they are all fallen angel entities or something, but yeah. and I think this chaos thing is a great play into it. Cause I know you want to talk about the plagues, but 
Yeah, you have Horus and you have Ra and there were hundreds of them. Hundreds. You have of these them. these all these gods, and then God says, "I'm going to execute my judgment upon the gods of Egypt." Yeah, yeah. So I I don't think that there's as many watchers as there are deities. I I certainly, you know, deities of you know of Egypt. Um, the only thing I say is that I think there's demonic reality to some of them because Moses writes about that in Deuteronomy, you know, when he says they worship the demons. He's talking about the gods of Canaan in particular. And he says, you know, they, they worship demons, meaning Israelite came in, Israelites came into Canaan and they worshiped demons when they worshiped these gods. So does that mean there's a one-to-one demon for every god? I, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't mm. know. Who knows? You know what I mean? So right. I don't think so. The, the Pantheon did have a kind of a hierarchy, but there was a king of the gods, Ra, and then Amun-Ra, and, and, but it, it was a lot of evolution over, over the millennia. And the irony about it, the, you know, I studied the, god, the Egyptian gods a little bit, and it's a, it's a chaotic mess, to be quite frank. I don't think there's any consistency. They made up stuff and, you know, they'll talk about one God as being one thing and then, then another God's that thing. And then they'll swip, swap gods and some gods will swap their identities like Sekhmet, the goddess of plague, can become Isis. You know, it's just like, what's going on here, you know? So yeah. the king of gods is supposed to be Ra or Amun-Ra later, but Horus was the son of Ra and he was Pharaoh on earth. And that was, you know, in other words, Pharaohs wanted to be the God on earth. So they claimed to be Horus on earth as the son of God, you know. But other than that, it's just a pantheon of varying deities with varying power and such. And there's, you know, it gets tricky on our show because we, we talk about this all the time of like, do some of these ancient kings have Nephilim roots where they part demigod themselves and then they're interacting through idolatry with other entities as well. So we have, we really need a chart of, of yeah. here's the flow chart of, of hierarchy of beings. But, but something you said earlier kind of triggered a thought in my mind. If, if, if Persia is battling Greece, then they are against each other. There is no harmony. There is no unity. It is chaos. It is literally just straight up chaos all the time. And then it would take something like 10 plagues maybe to bring it all down. But this right? idea is like... You think about whenever we think about Satan and his minions, it's always this unified army of, of darkness, you know, and Satan is leading them, but they're all right. in unity. And yeah, you're absolutely right. That was when I started writing my Chronicles of the Nephilim series, that's what I started to address. I thought, where does it say that? You know, and, and like you said, if they are varying authorities over varying nations and they're battling each other, well, then they're not all unified and they're they're all vying for power, which makes sense because if you think about it, that's how the mafia is, right? That's how yeah. gangs are. It's like, that's how evil really works. It's not unified against good. So yeah, that's that's the mm. approach that I take. Yeah, it gets complicated, obviously. there's I still think there's one entity above it all, but obviously there's, I don't know. I mean, if look at, look at human beings. I mean, look at the way we run our nations. I mean, sometimes we're in, we're allies with other nations, and then the the next minute, next year, we're selling weapons to the, to the nation to fight that nation, right? We're and we mirror, like you said, on Earth as it is in heaven, and so a lot of people have suggested on our show that's yeah. where uh, earthly kingdoms get get it from. Where do we get it from? We got it from heaven. We got it from we yeah yeah. So liberals would say that. No, you know, we have our earthly kingdoms, and so then we create the idea of heavenly kingdoms 
yeah. to reflect what we believe on earth. Because if you look at the biblical pattern, it there is a, a heavenly host, there's archangels, and so there is this there is a governmental scenario that does reflect the ancient world as well. And and that's not the only thing. I mean, the temple that God gave is very much influenced by Egyptian and Canaanite temples. <laughs> so it's like so I think though that what what you're getting at is what's more the case is that earth will tend to reflect things that are in heavenly in the heavenly realm. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we got that technology just by discovering it. I think it was given to us. And I think yeah. I think along with the technology was other secrets that we shouldn't have known. And the ancient and the ancient sure. world had more knowledge and now we're just we don't know. We're, I mean, we're so far removed. We don't know why we do things. We don't even know the origin of words. Why do we say the words we do? And if you follow them all the way back, you're like, oh, yeah. this is this goes all the way back to some pagan thing. And you didn't. You're saying these words you don't even know. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I just don't think that humans are that. I don't sure. think we're that brilliant to come up with all the things that we've come up with. I think we got it from something, some source, some yeah. lost technology that was given to us. And I think it goes back to the watchers, obviously. So, watcher tech. Yeah, that's the that's the narrative of yeah. the Book of Enoch, you know, and that's a very fascinating narrative. And I write about that in my novel Enoch Primordial. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so, how, Brian, how's, how does that play then with with Egypt and 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 then the and, and the plagues and the pantheon of gods? So one thing I think is interesting that you said was that they had this Pharaoh who was the son of God who ruled on earth. And it's, it's like this weird twisting of father God and Jesus, right? Where you have this, yes, this God that rules on earth, who is the son of, and that's why I think maybe one of the things I hear too is like, yeah, like all these things we have on earth are reflection, feel seem to be reflections of heaven or whatever's going on there. But it, everything that we have on that that's not of God is a really bad counterfeit or at least trying to replicate in a nefarious way the the ways of 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 God the ways of Yahweh the ways of that that were set set up it's like this twisted gospel and this i mean everything is this this you know it's this this false bastardization it's this it, sure. it's all a bad it's really just a bad like a B movie version of of what what God does yeah, I, I do think that that's how things work out. That's why you've got commonalities between all the religions, and you know, um, because I think that there is some primal truth of something, and and godless men separate upon the earth, and they they take you know what they what was what really happened, and they warp it into their own justification for their own beliefs. So you know, there was a flood. All the different nations have different stories of what that flood is like, right? And well, that's right. because they are spinning it within their own attempt to justify the rebellion against God. You know? So, so one thing we've heard a lot on our show, and we really spend a lot of time with Tim Alberino, is abdicating authority via idolatry to the gods. That a god still needs a human being to do his bidding here on earth, right? So these kings would have to have to have performed idolatry to give them authority over their principality their territory like they weren't just walking around taking areas humans were actively abdicating their authority to the to the deities we spent a lot of time talking to tim about how you know he thinks that idolatry is how 
a principality got power in an area. If a king was doing idolatry, then the entity could possess that territory. If he wasn't, you needed a human being to to give up their authority here in this area, a city, a throne, somewhere. That these 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 entities don't just roll into town and take over. They can't do that. Right, right. Actually, that is that is the premise of my stories as well. Um, they draw from the worship, the idolatrous yes, worship. Yes. Absolutely, that's how I tell my stories. Okay. Well, Absolutely, that's what, that's what the fall is all about, right? At the end of the day, these 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 watchers of the fallen wanted wanted to be worshipped. They wanted to be yeah worshipped like God was worshipped. And so then, of course, in Deuteronomy thirty two. When they're set up, it's no. When you're saying this, it makes sense to me, Brian. Like it's no mystery that they fought against each other, right? Because you kind of these different principalities had these nations that worshipped them, and you had the ability to lose that, correct? Like to not yes. be the top dog anymore. And so, of course, you fought your other rebellious watcher because you didn't want to lose your your the worship of you, the idolatry of your self of self. Yeah, they yeah. all wanted power, and Paul even kind of alludes to that thrones dominions. It's not throne. It sounds like a whole host. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, the point of this, though, is what? what is yeah. it? What, 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 what are they doing? What's, what are they after? And I think Psalm 82 is a, um, is a good explanation of that, which, by the way, I've also written a book called Psalm 82. There you go. Uh, <laughs> there he is. Get it to Amazon. Uh, anyway, and, and in that, you know, where God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Ah, okay. And and he goes on to describe how, you know, these gods have not been just, the, you know, and the idea here is that I've given you this authority, but you are ruling unjustly. You are showing partiality, you know, not rescuing, the, you're not, you're doing evil, you're not doing good. So somehow, in some way, these authorities, these principalities over the nations in the heavens, they have a responsibility, and they didn't. They sought idolatry and worship, and they didn't rule justly. And he said, therefore, you will die like men. You know, even though you're gods, you're, um, you're going to die like men. That's the judgment that they're going to have. And now, there are different views on what that occurs, but I think Psalm 82 says it very clearly in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That word arise is the resurrection of Christ, which is what Paul always, he always uses that, he always refers to the Old Testament word arise, aneste, is a reference to the resurrection of Christ. So uh, at Christ's resurrection, he becomes the judge of all the earth, and he inherits the nations at his ascension into the heavens. And so that's when he judges those those beings. Now I know that there, you know, there are different views of that in on your other hosts, but my understanding is that the that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who would come back and disinherit those those territorial powers. Makes sense to me. You know, when he when Jesus the Messiah is enthroned upon the throne of David in heaven over all creation as king of creation, right? And that happened in the first century then boom, that he takes the power away, he disinherits them, and that's what enables the gospel to actually go forth. That's why it says, now people from every tribe and tongue and nation are coming into the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. And so the gospel actually is the disinheritance of the, hev- of the principalities and powers. And that was, that was achieved through Christ in that first century. I know that that's very different from probably what most of your hosts say, but, but that's what I think the no, scriptures I mean, clearly we, we, say. We've talked about this in, in, in some extent, Luke. 
the world almost goes back to human beings are just ruling over human beings again. And we're, we're sort of slowly figuring out because the ancient world and the modern world are, are very different or it's just gone more underground because we still hear rumblings of that on our show all the time of weird stuff that goes on. So I was going to say, Brian, your, your new book is about Egypt and it's a story we're all familiar with, right? I think it's fascinating that this Exodus story we've all heard, have heard a hundred times if you grew up in church all the time about Moses and, and, you know, and the plagues and the part of the Red Sea and then, the, and then God rescuing his people. And yet there's so much context to that in light of Nate, what we talk about, and we've kind of covered some of it, but I wanted to, he's executing his judgment on the gods, right? And these are actual things, at least the big ones are, are actual, you know, we believe, you guys okay. would say they're actual watchers. So yeah, I, I think that what's going on there in, in the Exodus is God is breaking down the, he's judging the Egyptian pantheon because the, the Egyptians believe that the their cosmos was an operation of multiple deities interacting with one another with many responsibilities. So there's not just one God of one thing. You know, there's, they all work together to, to, uh, to, to bring about the water, to bring about the, uh, the fruit of the land for, for the Nile and for the air and the, and the stars. So they're all working together in an integrated pantheon. That's the word, integrated pantheon. And so, um, and that pantheon was believed to have been the creation of the world. And because their, their life was rooted in the Nile and in, the, in agriculture, and therefore the nature was their dominant paradigm in a sense, um, not nature like we know it, but you know. The, relation, the interrelationship of nature, right? Like the interrelationship, cycles and, the cycles, and, exactly, and exactly, and thank that. you. Yep, yep. So because of that, they were claiming to have that kind of authority and power, but when Yahweh's doing is, he's breaking down, he's decreating the world, he's reducing Egypt to chaos, which is sort of saying, all your gods are just a joke. They have no power. They don't have power over these things. I do. I am the God who brings forth the floods. I am the God who brings forth uh, the locusts. In fact, I'm going to eat up all, you know, let's have one of your gods, uh, you know, replace all the, 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 uh, the, the grain that the locusts, that I sent the locusts to eat up. You know, it's right. this sort of, it's a mockery, but it's also what theologians call decreation. So mm -hmm. God is returning Egypt to a state of decreation so that he can pull his people out of chaos and create his new order of Israel, right? With At Sinai, with his Torah, the law. And so the decreation notion is what I think is kind of what's going on there. And theologically speaking, what might that look like in the spiritual realm? Well, I had to speculate. So I do have these specific gods being affected by these judgments. You'll have to read the novel to find out because I think it's kind of cool the way I did it. But yeah, so I do have these gods being humbled and, and destroyed in some time, in some ways and stuff to show that spiritual equivalent of what's going on in the physical world. It's, I think it's fascinating too, Brian. Like you think about if you were an Egyptian and you you believe that this this God causes the Nile to flow and give brings us life and this God causes the sun to rise and this God causes the livestock to multiply and, and this God brings the, the crops out of the ground and then the king of kings is saying, now I'm in control of the Nile and I'm in control of the livestock and I'm in control of the frogs and the pestilence and I, I will destroy your crop and I can do X, Y, Z yeah. and these guys are powerless. And yeah. watch me, do, it, it really, it's like, it's almost like he has a hit list. He's like, let me just end all of the all of these things that you've got numerous of gods supposedly control and have power 
I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna. It's like a Jenga tower. I'm gonna start pulling out these yeah. pieces yeah, until the whole thing cra- collapses. The Jenga tower. You know what, what's interesting though. To the Egyptian mythology, it's not. It's not even necessarily like. Um, oh, the sun is Ra, and he's in the sky. No, actually, they would have a story that explains it. So they're they're understand not their understanding because they knew they could see with their eyes what was occurring. But what they did was they described the sun across the sky as Ra in his solar boat on the ocean above the above the sky, and he the the sun going across the sky was Ra in his solar boat, and he has various other gods with him on that boat. And then when he sets in the west, the west was the netherworld or the underworld, which they called Duat. Uh, you know, Hebrews call it Shale, but the uh, Egyptians call it Duat, and and they said that du- the underworld was in the west. So when the sun set, it set in the west because it was going into the underworld to go around underneath, go through the underworld to come back up to rise the next day. So there's a whole story and mythology of Ra on his boat with his fellow deities, and then he gets attacked by Apophis, the sea serpent of chaos, trying to keep him down there and kill him and all that, but he has victory over him, and then he rises. So this is, they can see what's happening. They, you know, they're not idiots, right? So mythology is their way of describing the deities and how they work and interact together, but it's 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 a narrative, it's a picture uh, that gives helps them make sense of the world. If that makes sense, it's not this sort of like literally they think that there's a bo- like there's this yeah this, no this, they do, yeah. they know there's not a boat you know right it's like obviously but they describe it in those because that's how they make sense of the spiritual world that they cannot see right. I guess is it's the way a, to put it's, it it's metaphor allegory for what well, yeah. obviously the the yeah. the cultures are being seduced by the gods. So I guess it's it's just this line of they have power, they have more power than human beings, they have influence, and the human tendency is to think when we idolize heroes, we make them into gods, we make them bigger than life, we make we fantasize, and so you know the 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 Israelites are being seduced to the dark side, so to speak, and they're you said they were there for four hundred fifty years, right? Yeah, and yeah. so you know when God tells us don't you know don't have any other gods before me. They're being seduced by them because they're they're manifesting, and they're obviously providing some value to be worshipped. Right? Yeah. It's not just this stone statue that we yeah. were told growing up. Yeah. So where's the line? You think how much power do they have, and how much power do we give them in our minds versus what they actual the actual you know ability that they had to do anything? Could they make crops grow? For example, could yeah. they? I, I don't believe so because I think that that you know God's clearly indicating through the plagues that they don't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they literally don't yeah. have that. Yeah. So yeah. But so, they just think they but, can. They think yeah, and they certainly can. that's the way I depict it in my novel. Like I I depict them as being sort of like you know I am the god of you know whatever uh, you know of of uh, of the Nile you know and yet he actually is afraid of water because demonic entities have problems in being weakened in water so you know so so yeah it's it's a disguise that they're playing because no i mean theologically speaking yeah biblically speaking there are other gods biblically right but they have no creative power there's no one like yahweh no one who creates they can't create but they can manipulate right maybe yeah 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, because they're they're in another dimension, so they they have some some ability. To, sure, absolutely. But but I think biblically speaking, those yeah. gods can't create like God can. I mean, create from nothing. So, for instance, fake it till you make it. <laughs> but they can't make it. They're just faking it. Yeah, exactly. They are faking it, but they're never making it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, but you're right. I think that. But they're seducing people doing sure. something, right. and they do have some abilities. There's there's some reality occult right. to occultic power, mm-hmm. absolutely. But it's not a creative power, I guess, is what I'm that's, saying. Well, that's a good question, right there, Brian. I want like so. Uh, one of the famous things is the Moses turns the staff into a snake, it's a serpent. Yeah, and then what Pharaoh calls out his magicians, and they do the same thing. And but yeah. then, I th- but I think in God's, you know, in Yahweh's sense of humor and or, or just his his display of power, it eats all of them, right? But there's a lot of serp- serpent stuff in this story too. Yeah, there is. Go, go ahead. I, was, I think I think that's a fascinating part of the story too. Well, yeah, no. So the the magicians can only replicate three, the first three, and then it's like this is the finger of God. We can't do this, you know, like the gnats. I think by the time they got the flies and stuff, but and even the frogs, you know, it's like turning the Nile to blood. Okay, the whole river's blood, right? So if they pick up a pot and and make it turn to blood, that could be a trick very easily. What they couldn't do is turn the blood back to the river, right? So it's mm. like they had no power over it. They could do so. I actually think those first uh, few replications of the mag of the ma- ma- magicians were probably tricks. I don't think they could do exactly what God was doing, but they could make it look like they were, and that's how I depicted it myself in in the story. So, oh, and and then the the serpents thing. Well, there's a well-known trick within that tradition of of the magicians, the lector priests, they were actually called in Egypt. They could hypnotize snakes to make them stiff and make them look like their staves, and then they would do that that actual magic trick. So uh, I think that's probably what what happened, because there's, there's actually evidence of that, that as a known trick amongst them. So what happened was they, you know, but Moses was actually really, truly a staff that became a snake, right? right. But they, they lay these, their staffs down, but, oh, you know, they become snakes, right? But then the fact that Moses' staff eats them up is that, is that mockery, total humiliation. Like, you know, whatever trick you can play on the people, nope, I'm going to eat you up and you, you can't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Well, that that kind of reminds me of the you know the the fires of Baal and that when they yeah. they call down fire of heaven, right? It, it's consumed all of. By the way, I wrote another altar. novel called Jezebel, Harlot Queen of Israel. Then we can find something you have written on Brian to get you here eventually. <laughs> that's one of my favorite instances. I did, I describe that whole world and what's going on in the spiritual realm. No, the 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 uh, priests of Baal and they Asherah, called all day. Yeah, all day and all night. And they cut themselves, and nothing happened. And see, here's my point: Baal was the storm god of Israel. See, and and my whole point in that story was, I actually, you know, I actually depicted Baal as a demonic entity, right? And he was he was so wrapped up into his power because he was the storm god of ba- of Canaan, and they worshipped him. I depicted him as starting to believe his own lie that like, I am the storm God. I can bring fire from heaven. And like, and he can't do it because he doesn't yeah. have that power. He doesn't have power. Sure. He yeah. could do some spiritual things that we can't do, but he can't do the things that God can do. And so I show him doing that. And he's like, and he, he can't bring it forth. And he realizes I'm a fool. I believe my own lie, you know, and I'm not this, I, I, I'm not the, I don't have the power of the storm. In other words, 
I know I don't believe watchers or angelic beings have power over storms and stuff. That's a God thing. That's only something God can do, you know? Yeah, yeah. However, I, you know, I, I do think they, they can do things that would look, that would be supernatural to us, like, you know, right? Like angels can go through walls and stuff. So there is some things they can do. I don't know exactly what, but. I mean, if their offspring could build some of these temples that we see around the world that are we can't build now. I mean, just their offspring could build these things. Obviously, yeah. the, the parents of these creatures that could perform and do and build and, and have this knowledge that we don't have. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this, the Israelites are being seduced by something. I don't yeah. think they're just wandering away from God because they're bored. And that's kind of what we were taught too. Yeah, Man, the Israelites got bored, and they, I'm like, no, they're performing sorcery and magic, and they're yeah. seducing them because God has more of a humble way of manifesting and and declaring who He is. It's not this sh- like, look at me, I'm so. It's more in the shadows. It's more in the love. It's more in the humility, and it and it's harder to understand. Then he parts the Red like, Sea, right? But yeah, but in the moment, it's like it's like you have to trust God, and in the last minute. The last second, yeah. boom, he yeah, shows he, up. He gets, you have to get up against a wall, no way out. It looks like everything's going to, you know, which is classic yeah. storytelling, which is awesome. Yes. Uh, and then that's how he delivers just to prove that it's him. Yes. And, and by the way, um, let me let me explain something else about Moses. So, you know, you know the passage where, you know, God tells Moses to go to Egypt and he says, I'm, a, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm slow of tongue, right? Why? Don't send me. I can't do it. Well, what, what was that? Well, there's a couple elements of that that I bring out in the novel. But I also wrote a companion book called The Spiritual World of Moses and Egypt. And it has all my biblical and historical For 999. Yeah, at, it is. 995 actually. Hey, whoa, you on Kindle. You overshot that one, Nate. <laughs> I lose the prices right, dude. I'm just, yeah. I should have so, bid a dollar. But but anyway, so um so what was I talking about now? Yeah, the, the, Moses. the companion with Moses. the, uh, oh, the right. spiritual the spiritual. Yeah. So did you know that Moses actually had a stuttering problem? I did. I did know that. Yeah, yeah and and uh, in the in the actual text itself, I do I do a whole study on that from other scholars where they explain that the language he's using there, like you know, I'm I uh, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips and and um, I'm slow of speech. That language is mm. used in reference to stuttering uh, in other p- parts of the Bible and stuff. Mm. So I that that's something I have in my novel that no one. I have a Moses who stutters, right? And uh, so that's kind of unique and interesting, but there's another element to it. He says, I'm not eloquent of speech. Well, here's the thing. Egyptian magic was a word-oriented magic. In other words, they believed that if they, if they reproduced the proper word formulas, that it would it was like formulas that would force the gods to do what they to- what like, they asked, like right? Spells? Ooh, kind of like spells, like exactly. So they had a lot of incantations, a lot of spells, but they had and they're all written out. In fact, they, the the Egyptian Book of the Dead that is literally uh, a book of spells. But what the spells means is, I'm cast a spell on you. No, no, it was when you meet these creatures in the underworld, you say these lines, and then you'll be they'll let you pass. Or if you gave them their secret name, they they have to let you pass, right? So they, they believed in the power of words and therefore Egyptian magicians were considered eloquent of speech, right? So Mo, when, when God is saying, I'm going, to go, I'm going to send you back, I'm going to do signs. Moses is thinking like an Egyptian. He's like, you're, you're having me do magic. I can't do magic. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not eloquent of speech, see? I'm not eloquent of speech, see?
I think that's interesting, Brian. Like sometimes we forget that Moses grew up in Egypt. So he was like very, he had to kind of unlearn that when he left and then he goes back and he, but he still is, that's all he knew, right? Like, yeah. And we forget that, that he's going back to the world he knows. And so when God's telling him to do stuff, like you just said, I never really put that in kind of context to be like. I tried to, I tried to depict what might that be like with Moses, who's thoroughly Egyptian being, meeting Yahweh for the first time. It was just like, it's, whoa, it, this isn't the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know? Um, now there is debate over how much did, uh, uh, what was it? What did Moses know and when did he know it in terms of his identity? But the problem is, is that there's there, the, the early part of Moses' life until the Exodus is so sparse. You know, it's one little piece about his birth, one little piece about him until he murders the Egyptian and then goes to Midian, then one little piece about Midian, and then the rest of it is the Exodus, right? So there's, there's just not much to it but uh, so therefore, the way it's the way the text is, it's not clear if like by the time Moses kills the Egyptian, he has an idea of his identity as a Hebrew. But people say, oh, you know, he was taught, he was secretly taught it by his mother when he was a young kid, or and I'm like, no, I I, don't, I really don't think so. I don't think he knew. I don't think he knew. He may have learned about the Jews, but and then by the time he's forty. He learns that he is a Jew. So we need to rewrite the Christmas song to Moses, did you know? Not Mary, did you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's that time of you year, Nathan. Yeah, oh, yeah. There you are. But, but what that means is, that means that means he's 40 years old, a 40-year-old Egyptian royalty, man. He's got a complete different mindset than right. most yeah. Jews would have. Yeah. And I is... tried to depict that in the novel and make have, have it make sense like But I mean, that. imagine like that, having that space and, and having been raised in this pantheon of gods, and then you have... The King of King, God of Gods, show up and be like, "Yeah, uh-uh. I'm gonna burn yeah. this bush." I mean, it's yeah. like, yeah. I mean, no wonder and you walk. No wonder you walk back. You put your sandals back on. You walk back to Egypt, man. Because that, that yeah, was yeah. there's a real power showed up, right? I mean, but think of this. You know, when he meets Yahweh in the burning bush, he doesn't even know who he is, and he doesn't know his name. So right. that means, no matter what he learned about his identity as a Jew in Egypt, he never learned about Yahweh. I think many of them probably didn't even remember Yahweh. There were obviously some Jews who were still faithful. But the point is, is he doesn't know anything about Yahweh until that burning bush. And that's 80 years. Wow. That's amazing. And he's that not, speaks- he's, by the way, he's in Midian for 40 years and he doesn't even meet Yahweh until the 80th year. Who are you? What's your name, right? Yeah. Isn't that wild? It's crazy. Like, that just that just speaks to like the character of God. Yeah, it's powerful, right? That it's just this patience and waiting. And like I'm gonna I'm gonna show you who I am, and I'm not offended by your culture, and I'm not offended by what you were raised in. What's interesting is, you know, we as American Christians, for example, oftentimes, you know, we we vi- we view the lens of Christianity via American culture of consumerism, yeah. and we have no idea. We have no idea. I had no idea that you can't read the Bible with that lens and it's such a blinding yeah. and, and you know, it was, took me 38 years to understand. Yeah. Okay, I'm reading this totally wrong and I have no idea. You have to go back in a time machine almost and completely divorce, divorce yourself from all that you know. Yeah, and, I, and until you're willing to humble yourself and have that view of like, okay, everything I know it could be a lie or wrong. So, so that happens at Moses when he's 80 years old, you're saying. Yeah, that's when he meets the the burning bush, and and, and he asks him, "What's your name?" He didn't he, he didn't know the name, <laughs> and he never heard it before. It's like what? That's wild. 
That's mm. wild. And you know, I write about this in my book. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> no, but you're talking about the ancient near, like understanding the Bible through the paradigm of the ancient mind. Sure, sure. That same thing happened to me, and you know, uh, over a decade ago, and it, it sort of helped me to see, start to learn, relearn seeing things. By the way, you know, if I can, for me, for me, it was Bigfoot. It's it's a little bit weird okay. of a journey. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. There's kooks yeah. in every crowd. Hey, come on, Brian. Come on, Dan. We'll get you in the believer box. If I can we'll point get you to, there. If I can point your people to something that is not mine and I don't make any money off of it, it's called the Bible Project. It's all free. It's online. And they do these little videos that teach little scriptural truths. And a lot of them right. are in this motif of the divine council. And also understanding the Bible through that ancient mindset of imagery and and all that kind of stuff hey now now's the time where we get to do an ad because we're bringing the guy on the show next month that guy tim mackey's coming on tim mackey oh cool yeah so tune in next month for tim mackey on blurry creatures right? but in the meantime, <laughs> the meantime. read brian Godow's book <laughs> yeah. god against the gods yeah. for which uh, i love it I talks love it. about everything you're talking about there uh, for a one-time love gift 995 <laughs> Five to Amazon. <laughs> Just messing with you. So, so let's get back to Moses. You want a blurry creature? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, all right. So, first of all, there's you know about in Numbers when it talks about God sent fire. Numbers twenty one six. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. And that was the point where they they were in the wilderness already free from you know Egypt, but their hearts are going back to Egypt, right? And so God starts strike him down with this plague with these serpents, you know, and then that's when he builds the Nahash, Nahash, which is that bronze serpent on a pole, right? That becomes a symbol of Christ. Anyway, the fiery serpents, that word is Seraphim Nahash. And there are many different words for snakes and serpents and stuff. Scholars who could do better than I do, can do about that, but I found some very interesting connections. And so Seraphim is the word that is used of the serpentine beings and God's throne. It's also a reference to to serpents, but it's a particular one that's used for those, and they're winged serpentine beings in God's heavenly throne, and the fieriness of that is is that they are you know these fiery light beings type of thing, right? Nachash is the traditional is a, one of the words for serpent, and it's also the word that was used mm. of you know this nachash of the garden, right? Right. But this idea is other scriptures that make reference to fly. Now that says fiery serpents, but there's there's references that say that they were flying fiery oh. serpents. So Isaiah fourteen twenty nine and Isaiah thirty thirty verse six refer to this flying fiery serpent in the wilderness. All right. So what are these creatures? Right. What are they? Well, what's interesting is that I found some uh, some legends. You know the that medical famous medical symbol yeah. of the serpents ripped around the pole and sometimes they have the wings on them. Well that's what Nahash was, or I'm sorry, not Nahash, Nahushtan. I was saying Nahash earlier, but Nahushtan was the bronze serpent on the pole. And that that's probably where they got this idea of the for the medical world of you know healing and stuff, right? Because they looked at this bronze serpent and they were healed. Well the serp the Interestingly, the bronze serpent on the pole was what's called, actually, that's an example of God, Yahweh, using, working, they're, they're just out of Egypt, so they're thinking Egyptians, right? They, they had what's called sympathetic magic, which they believe that if you did a replication of a creature, you could use it to protect yourself. 
So now it didn't really work in the real world, but God makes it work for this case. And he uses something that's very Egyptian to free them from their plague of these flying, fiery serpents. What did they look like? We don't know, but there's some other references I'll point you to in a second. But, but the idea there is, is that that becomes the symbol of Christ on the cross. We look to Christ on the cross. He becomes that serpent for us in the same way that he becomes sin for us, right? He doesn't become Satan or anything like that, but he takes on the evil. That's the point, right? Hmm. So we've got this notion, and is that mythical? That's that's the point, right? Well, the, interestingly, there are other historical references to flying fiery serpents. Oh. For instance, there is a story about Moses that's not in the Bible, but Josephus, the famous Jewish historian wrote about. It is possible he had he had access to other ancient documents that we don't have, and he writes about this. And what it was was uh, when Moses was in Egypt, he was a general in the army. And uh, Josephus describes this case where he's leading the army to go down to Cush, because he's a general, Moses is a general, right? This before he left and he's leading the army to, to fight Cush, and they come upon these flying fiery serpents the notion of fiery was not that they're on fire it was that they have they're venomous right it's it's fiery stinging right that's kind of what it is but they supposedly had wings right and here's what he writes he goes um and oh and he describes that moses brings some baskets in and in the baskets he has hundreds of these ibises and ibises were Egyptian birds. They were snake hunters. They were snake eaters. So he, he comes upon this, this valley that is known to have a lot of these flying serpents. He brings these bags of these ibises and releases them, and the ibises fly ahead, and they go and take out all these flying serpents so that his army could go through without getting stung. And I just thought that was so, so cool that I, I just had to bring that into the novel, right? Yeah, the original falcon, falconry. Father yeah, of falconry, yeah. Moses out there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, right? But right? here's something else, though. There's another ancient writer. So, okay, Hans Wilderberger. Okay, fi- fi- Flying Fiery Serpents is not only Egyptian. There was an, Assyri- uh, an Assyrian king, Esser Hayden, in the 7th century BC. So that's around 600 BC, right? He describes flying serpents on his 10th campaign into Egypt. So here's a, an Assyrian king, not Jew, not right? He, and he's describing his campaign in Egypt. So in other words, what I'm getting at is the likelihood of this being made up is not high because you know he's describing just what happened on his campaign. He's not going to need to make mythical things up, right? Anyway, he describes a distance of four double hours. I don't know what that means. Maybe that's eight hours. Who knows? I marched over a territory. There were two-headed serpents whose attacks spelled death. That's weird. But I trampled upon them and marched on a distance of four more double hours in a journey of two days. There were green animals. That's what one English says, but another translation says serpents whose wings were batting. Now that means like probably leathery bat wings, right? But those are the stats that reference in Egypt he's describing and, and he has that same single experience. He's not the only one. We're not done yet. The Greek historian Herodotus, who's a famous Greek historian, 
writes of sacred winged serpents in his histories. He writes, There is a place in Arabia not far from the town of Bhutto where I learn about winged serpents. When I arrived there, I saw innumerable bones and backbones of serpents. This place adjoins the plain of Egypt. Winged serpents are said to fly from Arabia at the beginning of spring, making for Egypt. The serpents are like water snakes. Their wings are not feathered, but like the wings of a bat. 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 I have now said enough concerning creatures that are sacred. So <laughs> it's, isn't that fascinating? So in That's other words, crazy. this isn't just in one location, like several different ancient authors from all different cultures reference and experience with these creatures. So, wow, we don't have any examples of them. And, you know, I don't know, but, uh, and are these legends? You know? Oh yeah, we did. Moses was fighting just bat snakes. The, yeah, the isn't that cool? Stinging, yeah, that's crazy. So, and no, I a, mean, this is this is straight out of like all the weird stuff we talk about on our show. I mean, we it goes back to the chimerical creatures, the defilement of creation that we all we always talk about. I mean, it, it would make sense. I mean, you see pictures of these these crazy creatures all over the all over the ancient world, and we just assume you grow up, you think, oh, these are just mythic, mythical creatures. Yeah. They didn't actually exist. But flying snakes, I mean, why, why, why couldn't there be flying snakes? Yeah, why couldn't there be? And, you know, and here's the thing. Are they demonic? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're just creatures because, you know, I, I, I once heard a scientist say, you know, 99% of all species on, in the history of the planet ha, are extinct. In other words, what, what exists now is mm -hmm. a very small. Well, if 99% are extinct, well, then why, why couldn't there be fl flying serpents? Yeah. You know, it's possible. Absolutely. No, I love it. I but love that's it. not I mean, the only cool occultic thing. Oh yeah. So in the Bible or in the Old Testament, we read about the magicians, but none of them are named. And in the book, one of the books, First uh, or Second Timothy, I can't remember where, but Paul, Second Timothy, chapter three, he's Paul is condemning false teachers as evil. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. 2 Timothy 3, men corrupted in mind and etc. And what? Where's Janus and Jambres? There's no mention of those names in the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. But there is an actual book an ancient book that exists called Janus and Jambres, hmm. and it, which means maybe Paul got it from there. Part of what's called the Pseudepigrapha. These are ancient documents that mm -hmm. are claiming to be, you know, written by certain characters, and they probably weren't. But this is the literature that Paul may have been drawing from, and it tells the story of Janus and Jambres as two of the main magicians of Pharaoh confronting Mo Moses. And what's cool is one of them, Janus, has an experience of of death and he repents he calls back to actually he dies and he calls back to jambres to to repent but he won't and so it's really cool how it's like one of them repents and one of them doesn't so to speak so it's this fascinating story about from their perspective interacting with moses so i thought that was so interesting i wanted to integrate that with my my moses novel 
So I bring Janice and Jambres as two major characters in the novel. We follow their journey and as magicians and such, and I show how one of them turns and one of them starts to see the, the lies that are going on. And, and he has this vision of the Egyptian underworld as he, as he thinks he's dead and he's going through it. And I introduce the reader to what the concept of the Egyptian underworld looked like, you know? And it's this fascinating experience as he thinks he's dying and, and facing the judgment throne of Osiris, oh, wow. who is supposed to be Lord of the Dead, Egyptian Lord of the Dead, right? So, so I have all that depicted in the novel, and, and it, it integrates into their storyline. But in that ancient Egyptian literature is a notion of something that doesn't appear in any other ancient literature, and that is the Lake of Fire. Mm. Now, the lake of fire we know is in is in Book of Revelation, right? Where yeah. did they get that from? It's a distinctly Egyptian concept. And it was, you know, where the dead are judged and burned up, you know. Obviously, it's not the same exactly as it works in the Bible, but the concept of the lake of fire, it's literally called the lake of fire, right? And I found that to be an, another fascinating Egyptianism that we find uh, in the Bible as well. So there's a lot of that stuff to learn. Mm. Would giants show up anywhere in the stories with the Exodus or in encounters with Moses or anything yes. to do with the Egyptians? Well, that's one of the reasons why I skipped it at the first time when I was writing my, my series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. I wanted to write stories with, where giants appeared. And um, so I skipped the Moses story because there's nothing mentioned in there. But now that I'm realizing that, well, I want to tell stories of the Watchers too, obviously, because they're part of it, right? Uh, well, the, I do think the Watcher's notion is in there. But in my research of, for the novel, I came to realize that when the Israelites get to Midian, they've escaped through the Red Sea, they're on their way to Sinai. They come to a place called Rephidim, and they have an encounter with Amalekites. Moses would raise his staff, yes. and the Jews would be winning. And then when he lowered the staff, the Amalekites would win, right? And those Amalekites, or they call them Amalek, they have a very distinct character in the Bible. After that event, God says, I will war with Amalek unto all generations. He has a particular despising of Amalek. And if you look up Amalekites throughout the rest of the Bible, they are one of the tribes that has some giants in them. Hmm. And, but there's another element that I found in my research, and that was that, how can I put this? In terms of historical research, it's possible that one of the biblical Anakim giants named Sheshai, he appears in some Egyptian stories as one of the Hyksos kings who invaded Egypt. And he has a scarab that was been found in Jericho with his name uh, as a ruler, Sheshai, right? So Sheshai is one of the three sons of Arba in the book of Joshua that are famous Anakim giants. We don't know anything about them. We just know that they're famous because they're mentioned like three times. Mm. So I bring that Sheshai into my story as one of the uh, working with the Amalekites because the Amalekites were a nomadic brutal tribe. I depict them as being cannibals because they were really monstrous. And they were in the Negev and around in Midian. And so I have them as some of the tribes who invaded Egypt once the Israelites left. Because don't forget, God just 
decimated the entire country with plagues, right? Then he kills Pharaoh and all his army and his chariots in the Red Sea. So Egypt is completely and utterly vulnerable, has no power. And then according to the historian that I'm following, the Egyptologist, David Roll, he's a controversial historian, but I'm following his work. He argues that the Hyksos then invaded Egypt after that all happened because, and they took it over without a fight because <laughs> there was nothing left in Egypt to fight. And that's how the Hyksos rule started for a few years until the Egyptians rose up and kicked them out. So, so God wipes out the Egyptian army, the giants or uh, armies led by giants come in and, and occupy yeah, Egypt. for a little, for a short bit of time, but then Sheshai goes back to Canaan because Sheshai is there when Mo, when Joshua is conquering the land. Sheshai is there. So remember, Israelites were uh, wandered for forty years before they entered the Promised right. Land. So yeah. during those forty years where they're just out, that's when Sheshai goes with some of his. Anakim guys, but then they end up coming back. So they're there in the land when Joshua actually enters. So th that's how it all works together. Historically, too, that's based on some historical stuff. Fantastic. Well, it's funny, Luke, because you said that the, the place that they rolled into Moses was Raphadim. Yeah. And we did a whole episode about how all the giants, the word Rapha, is connected with Dr. Judd Burton. With all the giants and the giant tribes. And it goes through these languages. And, 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 and Those are root. called Rephaim. Okay. I think, is that what you're talking about? Well, Repha is like, it's it's the god kings of the Nephilim. That, yes. That, that term goes all over the world. So Dr. Judd said that there's these... Did he offshoots. say that Rephidim is connected to that? No, we don't know. That was not specifically. Just the syllable Repha. Nate was just, Nate was just saying that this, it sounds familiar right. to when we did this, ra, the Rafa, Repha. Yes. Word, yes. Root, yeah. word, root, root word. The, it, the root of the word is connected to the giants, basically. Yeah. So you think that he, you think Moses encountered uh, giants in the wilderness? Possibly. Flying yeah. snakes? Just wild. Possibly. If he had just held his hands up the whole time, they could have just won everything. Yeah. He needed to just have like a shirt that kept his hands up. Ready. Yeah, really. He'd just walk around and just win all their battles. Now there's no there's no mention of them, right? Right. But right. Um, which is why I don't think he would have he would have encountered a tribe of them or anything. But it's not until they actually get to Kadesh Barnea and they spy out the land. But that was within the first you know couple years, I think, of the Exodus. And they spy out the land, and the giants are there, and they come back, right? And they say, oh, there are giants in the land, right? And then because of that, they wander for 40 years. So, um, so, they, so they spied the giants in the first, within the first few years of the Exodus, first couple of years, I think. And, what, and then it's Christmas time. What do you think about the, the magi of Egyptian times and the magi that come to witness the birth of Christ. Is there a connection there between yes, these? there actually is. There actually is. I've only done a little bit of research on that because I write about the Magi in my novel, <laughs> Chin, the, the, chi the, uh, the, the Dragon the Emperor chicken. of China. We're going to keep asking questions, Brian, until we find I something have you haven't Babylonian, written on when we get there. <laughs> I have Babylonian Magi show up in there. But in, in short, yeah, actually... Magi is the same word as the magicians of uh, Babylon during the time of Daniel. And here's what I think is happening. Daniel had such an impact that his teaching of the coming Messiah was held onto and cherished all the way until the coming of Jesus so that 
the Babylonians at the time of Jesus, the Babylonian Magi still had Daniel's influence. Now, were they were they committed Jews? No, I don't think so. But I, you know, I, I think I suspect they were just as Babylonian. But they still had that tradition of Daniel in their heritage. So that's why they were coming to find to find Messiah, which is really wild. It's crazy, All right? Right, we talked about that on this week's episode. We're doing a Christmas episode specifically. Oh. But I just thought there might be something connected there. And I guess one of my last questions is: Did you f- discover anything about Moses? Did you dig up anything that you've never heard before or thought about before that maybe transformed your view? I mean, obviously, you said you know interesting things that I haven't heard about. Of like, you know, he's eighty years old and doesn't even know who's talking yeah, to him yeah. in the burning bush, things like that. A lot, you know, I had heard of most everything, but I was never sure of any of all of some of it until I did mm-hmm. the research and found out. And so it was still enlightening, and all of it together gave me a different picture of Moses. And so one example would be the stuttering. I'd heard of that before, but I never looked into it, right? And, but like that was still jarring because, like, so he was stuttering. You know, it's like wow, that changed the picture. But it's it's in com- combination with several other things also. I think as I studied it, I I think he had an anger problem. I think that Moses had an anger problem. And I think he had a lot of doubt and and skepticism. Uh, And, you know, you read this when when he first encounters God in the burning bush, and he keeps saying, no, not me, no. But like, and then God keeps giving him answers, and he keeps saying, no, but send someone else. You know, it's like the gall in, in the face of this God, you know what I'm saying? Like, he has a lot of self confidence in a way. Uh, but also doubt, because even after he's been told that, he goes to Egypt, and even then he still has doubt with God when God tells him to do things, right? So that was that made me comforted to, to know that even the man who spoke face-to-face with God, he had problems with doubt. Here, not problems, he, he lived with doubt. And so my doubt mm-hmm. that I live with is more tolerable, tolerable because of that. But also, you know, I'd heard that there's this one Bible verse that just, it's weird, and you never know what the answer is. You know, it's in Numbers, I think, and and um, it basically says Mo- Moses married a Cushite wife, and Cushite was in Ethiopia, so he married a black woman, and that's pretty cool because in the ancient world in that time period, there wasn't there wasn't the concept of racism. There was no such thing as racism, and skin color was just simply skin color. It didn't mean anything. What they really hated were other nations or other religions, right? They didn't hmm. care what color skin people had. So in that world, I don't think it was scandalous to marry a black woman, right? But it's also interesting that he marries this woman from a world that's not Israelite. And who was that? Where was she? Was she? We don't hear anything about her. We only hear about Zipporah, and Zipporah was a Midianite. And there's some, you know, Midianites weren't black, right? And they're not Cushites. That's a different world. Cushites are way over under beneath Egypt. Midianites way over on the other side of the world. So it's like, was this a second wife? Well, anyway, I did research into it, and um, there's a strong possibility that Zipporah could have been, could have been easily a Cushite. She could have been adopted, or she could have been, you know, 
Midianites were traitors and, and they had multiple wives. So he could have, uh, a Midianite Jethro could have married a black woman and had a black child. There's, you know, that it's easily, and, and, and that black child could have been Zipporah, who Moses then married, right? Or he could have had a second wife, but there's no reference to her. So I had to come up with a way that, that would make sense and be consistent with the Bible. And I came up with some fascinating things because there's another legend in Josephus and Artapanus, another ancient Jewish historian, that talks about Moses as a general in the Egyptian army, he conquered Cush and he married a princess of Cush as part of the treaty. Mm. So she would have been black. Mm. And some people think that that was a legend created to answer that Bible verse because it was such a weird Bible verse. But I don't know. Um, and, and so I actually incorporate that into my story as well. So I try to incorporate a lot of these ancient uh, you know, stories or legends about Moses, as long as they fit within the biblical paradigm and they're not contradictory, you know, that's my goal. So, yeah, so there's all these things, you know, his problem with anger, the stuttering problem, all these things yeah. made him a more human man and quite frankly, less like Charlton Heston. Bummer. And I must admit, <laughs> yeah, I must admit, Charlton Heston was my favorite actor when I was a young, when I was young and that movie was imprinted on my mind and, you know, this let my people go you know like no he wasn't like that at all oh. that that that's he, that broke me of that concept he, he also of, wasn't the president of the nra it's really unfortunate right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was just wandering in the wilderness listening to limp biscuit you know and just getting real angry yeah and and carrying and carrying his revolutionary rifle brian do you these, think, these hey, egyptians can take it out of my cold dead hands hey crazy thought do you think that the possibly that Ethiopian connection is it, that's the pathway for Enoch to end up in Ethiopia? I don't know. Th through Moses, that is a thought. I mean, and we know, it got, know. somehow it got there. Oh, 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 oh! This is also something that I wasn't quite aware of. Um, if Moses was raised as royalty, because this is also connected to like you know the, the, there's a you know liberal scholars argue that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch and you know. And that and was written in, after the Babylonian exile, like, you know, hundreds of years later, you know, as a made-up story type of thing. That's what most, many people believe. And even many Christians, scholars have problems with it. But if Moses, Moses raises royalty, that means he would have been very well taught about, about other cultures because Egypt was a world power. Egypt by the way, this happened shortly after Hammurabi, right? So you have Hammurabi and his laws in Babylon. So Egypt also had libraries. And so therefore he probably got, learned about Babylonian culture, Assyrian culture, hmm. Canaanite culture hmm. through his education in Egypt, which explains why there's a lot of these connections in the, the Pentateuch. Hmm. So I found it kind of fascinating that, that Moses... He, he might have gotten a lot of literary education about mm. other cultures, and that's where a lot of these, there's a lot of Egyptianisms in, in the Pentateuch, but there's a lot of, there's also a lot of Babylonianisms <laughs> and uh, other, you know, references to other cultures. And it makes sense if he was an Egyptian that had access to all those cultures at a time where they loved, they prided themselves on the knowledge of these other worlds. So that explained him writing the Pentateuch with some knowledge of all these different cultures. He was a he was learned. He was a learned doctor, Nate. Yeah, you kind of need a jack of all trades. Yeah, to do what he did. Yeah, and we hear about that often on our show. That you sort of have to go through your own wilderness in order to be used by God. Yeah, 
if you don't if you don't know anything, you haven't been through any trials and tribulations, you haven't suffered much, you're not very useful to the kingdom of God because it requires you to do so many odd and crazy things. And it would make sense that he would be a useful tool for the kingdom later on in life. Absolutely. In fact, that's another element that I did sort of, it, oh, it made more sense to me was, okay, so he's royalty, he's taught to be a leader, and he may have been a general in the army, right? That's the kind of man, and like you said, also learned, educated, that's the kind of man who would have to lead a nation like he did, right? Yep. But he also had to learn the graciousness and shepherding of God, right? So he spent 40 years in Midian becoming a shepherd. Hmm. So he had both shepherd and king. Ah. You know, he had a whole life of as a shepherd, a whole life as royalty. So you, like you said, God was preparing, giving him the skills to be able to lead a nation that he would need because they were an unruly nation, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and sort of like just discovering those and how they all fit together. And, and oh, that's why. And the staff of Moses' staff. That was a shepherding staff that he got yeah, yeah. from, from uh, Midian. Uh, is it sort of a, 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 a cheap shot at their magician staffs? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, uh, they're, they're de- yeah, I think there's a, uh, definitely a play on that in the text. There are also beliefs that the gods had, um, by the way, the gods would hold snakes as staffs in their hands. So I yes. think that the whole snake as a staff thing is God using their imagery and mocking it, absolutely, but also Pharaoh held a staff and a crook, uh, I'm sorry, a crook, which is a shepherding crook, and a mace as, as a symbol of his authority. And so that shepherding crook is part of the play on that as well, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, there's a lot of that. In fact, and I, I write, wrote about that in my book, The Spiritual World of Moses, <laughs> um, I do write about how there's a, <laughs> there's a cool scholar who brought up this connection that he also thinks that the Moses story is being told in a way to make Moses look like um, Horus and Pharaoh to look like Set. Because in the ancient uh, stories of Egypt, Set, I'm sorry, Horus was the son of Osiris, was set to rule Egypt. I said Set, okay. He was, he was supposed to rule Egypt. Set was his uncle, and he wanted to rule Egypt, so he wanted to kill Horus, so he sought Horus out. And he was hid in the bulrushes by Isis. And oh. anyway, and then um, he grew up, and he became appointed, and Set was cast into the wilderness to become the god of chaos, right? And so so the, the scholar has pointed out that like, you know, not in the liberal, the liberals would say, oh yeah, see, there's just, the I, story of Moses came from the story of, you know, Set, Osiris, and, and Horus. No, no. The writers trying to, to say, you guys that worship Pharaoh, he's actually the Set, mm. the chaos monster. And the true mm. Pharaoh is Moses, even though he's not Pharaoh. You know what I'm saying? So he's, they're mm. using the Egyptian story uh, concept to retell Moses to make him out to be the superior to to Pharaoh because it was all about Moses versus Pharaoh, right? 
And, and obviously it's Yahweh versus Pharaoh, but Moses was the conduit for Yahweh. So there's a lot of these cool Egyptianisms that I came across that are in the text that, to show and indicate how Egyptian the, that original writer was of, of, the, of Moses' story. Fascinating. Yeah, well, when you talk about this, it just, it just reminds me of Christmas time, this humbling sort of the humble roots of Jesus being born in the manger and this yeah. very, it's like, you know, you think about Moses and the staff and the sheep and this shepherd imagery that just goes throughout and how you see these simple narratives throughout the the Old Testament in the midst of all this God uh, language and this sorcery and yet the story of the gospel sometimes is just finding this lost sheep, right? Yes. It's this very, very simple beautiful natural story in the midst of this just perverted twisted dark sorcery driven occultic amen i i'm with you on that because that's how i felt writing the story was this in fact you know you read this and there's a lot i mean the plagues and then god cast plagues on Israel. He kills a bunch of them. You know, there's there's just idolatry, the, the golden calf, and then a plague after that. And it's just this brutal, brutal world, you know? And it's, you know, you could see how God has to be that way to deal in that world. But mm -hmm. like I said, then, but then he went, he went into Midian to teach him to become a shepherd because you can't just, the ruler cannot just be power. He has to be loving. Mm -hmm. And that's how Moses had to learn loving shepherding. And But it's not just about Moses. To me, that's about God. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And that's God was using that to say he is the shepherd of his people, really. And the shepherd is the loving side that, you know, atheists look at them, what a cruel, what a cruel God who kills all those people. It's like, well, first of all, it's actually the opposite. God God should have killed everybody, but he didn't. So that makes him merciful. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't slaughter right. everybody who deserved to die. Instead, he hold, he does slaughter some, but he holds back by his grace and he chooses some, right? And that's God's salvific choice and all this. So it's a loving, shepherding Yahweh. That is as much who he is, not just the power side of him. And, uh, and that's a beautiful picture of God that I felt I had to get. Oh, that was another element of Moses that I got too. That's right. The whole father-like thing. You know, I realized as I studied, it's like, you know, Moses had a father issues his whole life. Think about it. His original father doesn't abandon him because they, they're trying to save him, right? But his mother saves him by putting him in the river, but there's no mention of his father. So his father... You know, and the fathers were supposed to raise and protect their sons, right? And he must have felt really horrible, right? But his father's not even mentioned. He gets adopted. He's, a, he's an adopted of a pharaoh who then, who's the son of a pharaoh, who then pharaoh tries to kill him. He runs away. And, and then he meets Jethro, who becomes a father figure for him mm. in Midian. But it's not his real father. Then he comes back to Egypt. And by the way, his father was named Amram. His father lived to be 137 years old. His father went with the Exodus, right? So he was there all along and nothing's ever mentioned of him. Huh. And so Moses goes back and I can imagine just how miserable his father must have felt like, you know, I failed you as a father, right? You know, and, and all this time Moses is without a, a real father and he's adopted and he's, then he's abandoned, then he's a mur attempted murdered. His father tries to kill him. So it's just like, 
what kind of, you know, and then God reveals himself to him as his true father in heaven. Hmm. And I think that that's, you know, we all struggle with father issues in different ways. And I think that's the point of Moses' story was he was a man who never had a true earthly father that that was to him what he needed to be because he needed to learn Yahweh was, God was his father. Mm. And mm. I, you know, I kind of had similar experience in my own life. So I get that, you know, not, <laughs> not being adopted and all that stuff. Well, no, I mean, it, make, it makes sense that he might have been, got a late start, might have had some development issues. And then he Struggling has anger problems. And then he has anger yeah. problems Daddy later in his life. Yeah. He's, hit, mean, he's hitting rocks to get the water out instead yeah. of just tapping yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's just he's just raging against the machine. Sounds like a golfer, just hitting things with his club. <laughs> yeah, no, no, seriously. That's yeah. what I do. And even like the way he talks <laughs> at times. I don't have any references right here, but um, if you read the story of Exodus, there are sometimes where the way he talks is just like, really, you know? <laughs> it's like that's that sounds mean, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I think he does have that anger issue as well. Yeah. So it's funny the people that God uses, right? All the pains and the problems. But it really, it, it, I think, encompasses kind of what we try to talk about on this show a lot, Brian, is that our battle isn't flesh and blood. We're, we, we are at a war with entities we can't see, and they manifest in weird ways in our world. And we talk about the creatures, and that's the vehicle that we use to talk about the spiritual world. I hear you. That these things are... They man- people see them and they manifest, and it's and it's. We often think that we have to be perfect to approach God, or that we have to have all of our, you know, our crap together. And clearly, I think there's God is using human beings to fight against the darkness, and she's got to be available. So it's just it's great to hear these new fresh takes and talk about everything from flying snakes. Look at Thanks that. Thanks for that having around. me on, man. Yeah. yeah, I write about all of this. <laughs> My two books. I love it, dude. I love it. Brian, you can come back anytime, man. This is great. You Are, do, you still right live, do you still live in do you still live in California? Oh no, dude. I I escaped a year ago to there Texas. You go. All right. Good man. So we're, he doesn't have to pay as many taxes now. He's t- trying to make up for lost time. We're in Tennessee. Freedom. So. Yeah, freedom. Freedom ba- Oh yeah. Good man. Well, yeah. thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um what's your website? Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. All my books are in, almost all my books are in ebook, paperback, or audiobook on Amazon exclusively. Uh, but if you want to find out more information about them, you know, you can also go to my website. I have a lot of cool stuff on there about all my novels and, you know, free stuff. And, and uh, Or just go right to Amazon and, and there's a lot of good book, descri- in the book descriptions, you'll see everything you need to probably learn to, all right. to decide to buy a book or not. That's but awesome. You should. You should buy you one. Should. Of, yeah, we, you should. my new book. That's right. We'll make you come back for BlurryCon when we do BlurryCon one of these days. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do something okay. crazy. We'll. Uh, we're, we're talking about doing some some sort of because people are like, oh, we got to do. We got to get uh, get everyone together. I don't know. We've created this weird following of okay. people who like this uh, cool. this community of, with with all this stuff. So we we're thinking about maybe doing I'm like a, a long day event so maybe we're, we're kind of spreading the gospel the word of of maybe next year sometime we'll do some sort of event but, but go check out brian's stuff brian thank you so much hit up hit, hit up his website and um tell him blurry sent you thanks guys <laughs> that's right yeah brian we keep, thanks again man thanks so much for the time all right guys thanks, all right man appreciate it